So this evening I'd like to speak about equanimity. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's also one of the four Brahma-viharas or divine emotions. It's also um, the result of the five spiritual faculties. And um, so it's in many of the numbered um, talks that the Buddha gave. Very important uh, lesson to train ourselves in. I like to call equanimity seeing the world with quiet eyes. Seeing the world quiet with quiet eyes. And I came to this uh, some years ago when I read something by the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. He was minister of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco, an African-American man. And he co-founded that uh, church in about 1944. He was a great friend of the family of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, he counseled Martin Luther King Jr. during his ministry, especially during the difficult times. So I came across his meditation entitled Deep is the Hunger. And this is a collection of writings And uh, this particular writing continues to inspire me to incline my heart and mind towards equanimity. So I'll read his words of Dr. Thurman. How How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So seeing the world with quiet eyes is one of those subjective experiences of equanimity. It's what people and and even my own heart experiences when there's equanimity there. I'm not seeing the world with eyes that are ready to react uh, with attachment or aversion. So there's other subjective experiences uh, that I'm sure that you've all felt yourself one time or another. There can be inner calm, that inner quiet in the mind, like a still forest pool And when the the quietness and stability and stillness of the heart and mind are like that, quiet, still, there's this ability to see things very clearly in that still forest pool of our hearts and our minds. There can also be a spacious, wide view of what is being known. And usually people equate equanimity with the word balance a lot, but not so much with the understanding or um, empirical experience of spaciousness. How the, the heart and mind can be very big, able to hold whatever is in the field of awareness, instead of either distorting it or pushing it away because it's unpleasant or holding on to it because it's pleasant. So when there can be this spacious wide view to the outer and inner experience, it allows things to be known as they are in an unbiased way. So sometimes this um, description or this word of unbiased also is a way that we can feel empirically, experientially, during times when there's this ability to just see clearly how things are, instead of pushing it away or holding on or having a distorted view of it. So these two, attachment and aversion, are called the direct opposites of equanimity. Um, Sometimes it's called the far enemy. Far enemy is reactivity, in two parts, attachment in all its manifestations and aversion in all its manifestations. 
So we're getting to see how these are in our practice right now. And sometimes just to be aware of them is very, very trying. It's very difficult. But when attachment and aversion are not present, there's this clear and wise view of the entire situation. So our hearts and minds can be very spacious at that time. This is a pretty high bar, of course. And when we're here in practice, we're actually learning how to do that over and over again. And sometimes it helps to have some uh, tools in our meditator's toolbox to be able to face those times when there's reactivity. So I'm going to, um, in, in this talk here, I'm going to give some examples of that so we can understand uh, through our own experience. So when, when there is this clear view, conditions allow us to act or speak powerfully in the world in the most skillful and beneficial ways for all concerned. Because when we're not seeing the reactivity in our minds, usually that's what comes out in our actions and in our speech. So it's so important to see when reactivity is there and to also bring a measure of uh, uh, equanimity even to that reactivity that we already feel. So I'll, I'll fill this out also, that part of it. So for this reason, the ability to act or speak powerfully in the world, in the most skillful way, in the most uh, effective way, for this reason, equanimity is a really important subject to examine, to investigate, to practice uh, because of the times we live in now. So I don't have to tell you, I'm preaching to the choir, that we live in a time of great, there's a lot of ups and downs in life around us and within us. We live in a time when there is so much accessibility to the information that's available to us. And there is opinion after opinion. You know, there's not just the news. There's a... uh, opinions about the news that go on and on and on. So there's this proliferation of so many opinions, the speed of information. All of this can trigger us day to day and unknowingly a lot react to the outer conditions with fear or confusion or attachment to how we think it should be. Automatically that... uh, far enemy or that direct opposite of equanimity just arises out of not knowing how to handle those moments during that time. So of course we're only human. Strong emotions rise up within us and uh, that's why we're here in practice to be able to know open to those strong emotions and to be able to perhaps bring a moment of equanimity to those times. We get so busy doing our life because we're very responsible people that we don't have this time to just be. So this is such a precious time that we can be here in this quietness and space to just see how it is in our hearts, in relationship to the various things that are disturbing us. Here it's so quiet, but uh, and of course there's not a whole lot, but as one of my uh, colleagues said yesterday or today, there are many things that the mind is looking for to just pounce on, you know, at any time. It can be so quiet that... Um, just, you know, hearing somebody's beep on the on their watch is like a big deal. You know, like... <laughs> in practically every single retreat, it happens. You know, just like somebody's watch is beeping. Maybe, and even in the notes say, it only be- beeps three times, but it makes a lot of aversion arise in my mind. And 
that's that's the reason we're here you know to notice what arises so that maybe we can bring a measure of balance and spaciousness to that moment like okay this is how it is here also so unrecognized reactivity is the opposite of equanimity it can add to the disharmony and the hurt that is already present in the world because our reactivity to that creates more harm, creates more disharmony. So I hope that we can recognize our good fortune here just to be able to slow down. We have the opportunity to live in relative simplicity there's just, you know, this, the schedule, which is um, kind of holding us together in some way, sitting and walking and the meals and the Dharma talk in the evening. Sometimes, almost daily, we have the Brahma Viharas, which help us stay in tune with our highest aspirations. I think it's a great honor to feel the earth beneath my feet here. Oftentimes in life, even in my own life as a Dharma teacher, there's so much to do, so much more these days too. So so many people are needing to be uh, in the Dharma, surrounded by the Dharma more. And so being a spiritual friend to many, sometimes it keeps me, um, you know, having to be quick on my feet. But just to feel the earth beneath my feet, um, I live in a place where it's there. It's beautiful, and where I live on Maui, and yet sometimes I have to stop myself and say, "Okay, just feel this moment, this step. Take off my shoes and just feel the earth beneath my feet. Look up and look at the stars and the moon. Look out and see the ocean and feel the wind and rain." So connecting to nature and the trees and the elements of nature are so healing for us. It's medicine all around us and the simplicity to be able to experience that, just that. When I was younger and uh, practicing, and uh, probably I was in my 30s and living on Maui already, and then just learning how to be just with seeing, just with hearing, just with smelling, just tasting, just sensing. It was so refreshing, you know, to be able to see a sunset and just take it in and see. Just seeing and not getting all, you know, all the thoughts that come, oh, I can't wait to tell my daughter how beautiful the sunset was or all the things that make it more kind of cover over the actual experience of just seeing and maybe the delight or contentment that would arise in the mind. Just delight, just sensing that, that utter simplicity of just being here. To rest our weary bodies and minds, sometimes it takes a while to get there. We need, sometimes we need rest to kind of find our balance. So we have a lot of good conditions for learning how to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. The teachings, the environment, the simplicity. So with these conditions, we're able to feel enough safety to find that place within us. A lot of times, um, of course, this kind of simplicity brings up difficulties that have been kind of tapped down in the mind and heart for a while. And when we feel the safety and the heart and mind sense it so deeply, they're able to kind of bubble up to the surface and be known so that um, they can be met with awareness and possibly some moments of clear seeing, equanimity, non-reactivity, so that they also can be known, can be seen in this safety 
sometimes I think that when these things happen to my own heart, that this is actually calling upon my heart-mind to apply some awareness here, to greet it with awareness instead of pushing it down again. But of course, we need to understand how to balance that, how to do it in a way that is continued safety for us, as much balance as we can as we open to everything. So I'd like to read something from Thomas Merton, an American Trappist monk in the Catholic tradition. Probably many of you have heard of him. How many of you know of Thomas Merton? So many of you, yeah. He was the um, abbot of the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky and a social activist, actually. I didn't know that he actually called himself that, although I experienced that of his writings and teachings. He was also a student of comparative religion, and he really was interested in the Dharma. So this writing by Thomas Merton verifies a lot of what we may have learned also, to be true by being here, taking some space from the busy time of our lives. And uh, he has strong words about this, so you may not agree with his words, but maybe it will evoke some perceptions, um, more clear perceptions of your own. He calls this writing courageous rest, courageous rest. Some of us, to quote him now, some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves, by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest, doing nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform. So he wrote this in the 50s, 60s. He wrote these um, uh, little, I call them dharmets to me, you know, little dharma teachings about how true it is today, as true as it was in those days. So with this rush and pressure of life, it's so understandable that we feel vulnerable. And when we come here, we sense that vulnerability. You know, some kind of shields start melting from our heart space area, and we start feeling our hearts in a way that we haven't felt before. So the Buddha often spoke of these eight worldly conditions that are akin to this, uh, or bring up this understanding of equanimity. They're sometimes called the four pairs of vicissitudes. And we're constantly feeling the flux of these um, this is what, when Reverend Thurman talked about the vicissitudes, um, I'm not sure that he knew this was part of the Dharma understanding too. So these eight vicissitudes or worldly conditions that we feel the flux of are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. These are the ups and downs of life that are natural for this realm of existence. This is how it is. So it's a major reason we feel vulnerability as a human being because we're open to this and more so in a practice of awareness because we're really becoming aware of whatever's going on inwardly in a way that maybe... um, those of us get a little bit shocked what we see and think that somehow our practice is wrong. But actually, when we start feeling this vulnerability, this is a good thing. 
We might feel things that are very unpleasant, very hard to bear, and then we have to learn a way to balance in order to open to all of that. So equanimity is a wonderful um, a place where we can learn how to balance, also to allow ourselves to begin to open bit by bit to what is being known, and to know exactly how much to open to, not too much and not in a way that we're coming to awareness with it just to kind of note it away, but really to connect and sustain our relationship a bit more to that actual experience. So there are two levels of um, equanimity that I'd like to talk about that's contained in, in this talk the external level that we can apply equanimity towards and also the internal level that we're applying equanimity towards. Mostly here on retreat, we are learning how to uh, allow the internal experiences to rise to the level of awareness and to um, see whether they are uh, reactivities to the outer experience and then be able to bring equanimity to that inner experience. So this is mostly what we're learning here in our practice. So in our lives we're constantly being bombarded and triggered by external conditions thoughts, emotions, mental states, inner attitudes that we're usually not so aware of. And so it might be like someone called, I think it was Trungpa Rinpoche, that um, knowing oneself or meditation is one humiliation after another (laughs) because we're constantly seeing things within our hearts and our minds that are like, ooh, you know, we don't want to see those things. So on the outer, um, the outer conditions of life, maybe the first arrow, the first painful experience we may experience is um, seeing the outer experience of life. Say something we're seeing or hearing or um, uh, knowing something in the outer conditions that uh, brings us a reactivity towards that outer condition like there's a sense of, I don't like this, or I hate this, or I want something else to be happening. It should be this way in the world, or with whomever, or whatever group we're, uh, we're referring to in that minute, moment. So the response to the outer conditions can be one of reactivity. And it's possible to be able to uh, bring up in in conjunction with awareness, say awareness comes up in relationship to something that's going on in the outer activity, in the outer conditions, and we're able to say, this is the way it is right now. That those are the, some words that are used in, in, our, in our practice to incline the mind towards equanimity, towards more of a balance. This is the way it is right now. And then when we see what the inner conditions are also, sometimes we sometimes maybe we've already reacted and we see what those inner conditions are. We reacted out of, I don't like this. Or maybe we said or did something or acted in a way that caused us some cringing inside. Then we have a second chance to apply uh, equanimity to that inner reactivity. So to the outer conditions, we can bring equanimity. And then when inwardly we react to those outer conditions, say it's uh, fear or say it's anger or deep attachment, strong attachment, before we let that continue on in the mind stream, we can add on to that moment of awareness in relationship to what's going on in here 
and say, this is the way it is right now in this inner terrain. So two areas we can apply equanimity to. The outer conditions, this is the way it is right now, is a, it's a phrase that just may help us to relax, to be more calm around it. But sometimes it doesn't have that response inwardly. And we're still reacting inside. So we can take equanimity to the inner conditions and be able to maybe make uh, an inclination of the mind with some words or maybe just plain intention. This is how it is right now. These are the conditions inwardly. These are the conditions outwardly. To allow the mind to just take it in and to hold it in a spacious, balanced, calm place. It does take time for this to happen. Um, I'm just going to give you a few examples. When I was much younger, in the 90s, I was asked to start offering the Dharma. And um, it was pretty scary for me. You know, I'd not been, I'd not um, been a public speaker and all of a sudden I was put in a position to speak to a lot of people. The first time it happened was actually at a retreat. Not the first time it happened, but the first time I, I saw a lot of fear inside and um, a lot of like, oh, why, why was I assigned this? A lot of kind of, a little bit of resentment and, you know, why me right now? And so I, the circumstances around this were that when this retreat, this particular retreat with Joseph Goldstein was being um, held at another venue, the one that burned down, what, what was that venue, the one that burned down? Angela Center, right. So that there was uh, Joseph and Sharon's retreat. Uh, they were having it for multiple years already. And Joseph asked me to come and, and help. So when I first started teaching, that was all I was doing. I said, okay, I'm coming to help. That, that's what I'm doing. I'll, you know, make sign-up sheets for yogis and uh, all of that. Well, first of all, just on a sidebar, he didn't tell me, they didn't tell me how many uh, lines to put in there, you know, for people to sign up. So I just put an empty sheet up there. And um, so every day I had a lot of people, like 20 people, you know, to see. Boy, it was a steep learning curve. And um, one time we were sitting in the dining room at Angela Center and Joseph and Sharon were saying, this is a pretty easy retreat. You know, I haven't had to see a lot of people. Kamala, how many, what, are you seeing a lot of people? I said, yeah, it's about 20 people. Sometimes I'm having an interview at night, you know, after the Dharma talk. And you, you didn't tell me how many lines to put up there. And they said, oops, you know. But. So that, that was... That was a steep learning curve for me. And then um, the real story was about, you know, about this whole thing, reactivity, was when during another one of those retreats, a a bit later on, maybe two or three retreats later, I was still doing that retreat, helping, and then he said, oh, Kamala, we have to go and see Achan Amaro. And so you have to do the Dharma talk. So I said, what? You know, I have to do the Dharma talk? I, I, don't, I, I don't give Dharma talks, you know. Oh, just tell stories about Manindra and what you learned about that story. You know, what was the lesson for you? And I said, okay, that, that's pretty easy. I'll, I'll do that. So I was... I wrote down my notes, and so I was sitting there, and that hall was kind of wide this way. And um, there were more people sitting closer in and around. And um, 
so I was, you know, just sat up there and, and looking around and thought, wow, this is a lot. This is, you know, even at that time there were a hundred people coming to that retreat, and even now, of course. And so um, I said, okay, I'm going to give this talk. And I really had to muster up a lot of courage. But inside there was a lot of anxiety and nervousness and fear. So a little bit about equanimity. Okay, this is how it is inside. Had learned it already at that time. It brought some sense of calm, something to my heart and mind that I could settle with a little more. And so there I started to give the talk and I said, uh, Sharon and Joseph are not here and <laughs> I kind of apologized for me being present there. And then I said, um, but you know what, I'm really glad they're not here because it, it would be harder on me. But I, I have this talk, I'm going to give you this talk. And right then, they started coming into the room. And I said, oh, and then a four-letter word, <laughs> out loud. It was like, oh my God, you know, Joseph's going to hear me now. But so, Joseph, and <laughs> you know, he's my, um, my elder brother in the Dharma. There's a, there's a word for that, a Sanskrit word. I forget, it's beautiful. But he's just like the closest person to me apart from my teachers, you know, in my life, in the Dharma as a teacher. So he sat down and so I, I gave the, the talk and, and so he was very appreciative. I told stories of Manindra and he had some little, you know, happiness tears, I think. Don't tell him I said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, in his eyes, you know, just kind of um, appreciative. So it went on okay. But the second arrow was a lot of cringing in my mind after that. Like, oh my God, you know, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, or I'm just not, I, I'm not going to be a Dharma teacher, forget it. You know, or things that I'm not good enough, that, that's it, I'm just going to take sign-ups from now on. And so all these deprecatory ways of speaking to myself, just really self-harming. So didn't have the wherewithal then to go to the inner place and say, this is how it is right now inwardly. I just believed, I just believed that that's the way it is. So... I felt um, really happy to hear this story from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And um, this is about praise and blame and about he himself giving a Dharma talk. So <clears throat> I'm reading to you part of what he said. Uh, he said a verse about equanimity. It's a very far out verse about emptiness. See the equality of praise and blame, approval and disapproval, good and bad reputation, for they are just like illusions or dreams and have no true existence. That's a, a very high calling there. But then he went on to say, This verse refers to the eight worldly concerns, wanting to be praised and not wanting to be criticized wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, wanting gain and, want, and not wanting loss, wanting fame and approval and not wanting rejection and disgrace. We all experience these, don't we? Even animals have them in some slight measure. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I am here teaching on this throne, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears the thought, how am I doing? How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me? Maybe not. Oh, that, oh dear, that did not go well. I mean, this is part of his words too. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, now that I am here on this throne transmitting the Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected 
by this by these eight worldly concerns. However, we will find that hopes and fears and discursive thoughts of every description will come to our minds. The eight worldly concerns can creep up on us quite sneakily. Even when we do something virtuous, they will try and find a way to slip in. So that's his experiences of outer conditions and inner conditions and knowing them, knowing them more clearly in his own mind so he can bring a measure of equanimity perhaps to that feeling and knowing the Dalai Lama, not personally, but perhaps that's natural for him to do. So with these unpredictable outer conditions and deeply set habit patterns coming from within that are unknowingly bombarding us sometimes, it's no wonder we can feel closed down and overwhelmed and maybe depressed, disconnected, kind of numb sometimes about uh, ourselves and what's going on. So it said that equanimity uh, and non-reactivity is a protection to accompany awareness. Because when awareness is there, it needs a lot of strength. It said that one of the beautiful, uh, of the beautiful qualities of the heart, uh, awareness is one of them, mindfulness is one of them. And when mindfulness is there, all the beautiful qualities have a potential to arise. So we can incline the mind towards equanimity and help that to arise in the moment. Sometimes when we're feeling reactive to the outer conditions, other experiences that are just surrounding us or experiences in our lives, like uh, um, my partner Steve Armstrong has a medical condition, uh, cancer, and he has to be very, very alert and aware of when the MRIs come every couple of months and it shows the result, the latest result of what's going on in his brain. And um, he prepares himself with equanimity knowing whatever the outer conditions are, this is the way it is right now. I mean, just being able to see that, uh, that MRI and then whatever the inner conditions are, are to that, this is the way it is right now and here as well. So if there is reactivity, there's a possibility for that not to be so strong when there's more equanimity in relationship to our inner experience. So it, it implies balance, but the subjective experience is a spacious balance, a spacious calm balance, not like it's a balancing on a razor's edge where if we're just not quite balanced and tip a little bit one way, we lose our balance or tip a little bit the other way, again, lose our balance and ability to see things as they are. But it's really having a wide stance. Oftentimes a mountain is one of the examples that are given for this very wide, grounded balance. Or a boulder, uh, a rock, very grounded, rock steady. Sometimes we hear, hear that word, rock steady, in reference to a person who has a lot of equanimity. So this quality of that rock steadiness is often um, known as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. So allowing the mind and heart to be big enough to contain all that life presents, all that awareness, uh, the field of awareness presents to us. Being aware of that, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. By the way, the deepest reactivity is the reactivity to pleasant. What do you think the reactivity to pleasant is? Attachment. 
and the reactivity to unpleasant is aversion in all its various forms, both of those. So on on the deep levels of practice, this is what we're learning so that even in the gross levels, on the outer level of experience, outer conditions, and also inner conditions, when we take the practice or the the cultivation to learn reactivity, to practice non-reactivity, then when it comes to that place in our practice, which is called the doorway to the unconditioned, uh, equanimity can be there. It's called... um, Sankara upeka. That means uh, equanimity is upeka, and sankara it means to every moment's experience that comes up, there's non-reactivity, so that there's no attachment and no aversion in the mind. The mind becomes extremely pure, and there is a great uh, wisdom there to see things as they are to be able to see deeper than that place beyond equanimity. So the Buddha would call uh, equanimity, would say about it, developing a mind that is vast like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. So to really survive and thrive as a human being, we have to have a big enough space in our heart-minds to make room for the reality that presents itself. And along the way, we can't just, you know, pull our petals open. We really have to, bit by bit, allow things to open up and maybe find, we have to be able to find our balance with certain things that are really difficult to open to. So it takes a lot of time and patience and knowing how to navigate challenging inner experiences. Don Juan uh, said, the teacher said to his student, Carlos Castaneda, The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. The wonder of being human, I translate that to be our capacity for transformation. This is one of the wonders of being human, that we can transform. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe an inner sense of this beautiful quality, this infinitely spacious mind. This is from Achan Sumedho. The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds or nothing. All things can come and go through through, without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So it really gives sense to this ability for awareness to be able to notice in a very strong way um, with a lot of power to be able to notice the arisings, the changings, and the passings away of all phenomena without hanging on to what's pleasant, without pushing away with what's unpleasant, but to simply be with what's going on without reaction or resistance, allowing all the defilements to simply arise and pass away and be able to see their um, impermanent, not-self, unsatisfactory nature, moment to moment. So very clear space to see things as they are, the truth of the moment or the situation. It's said that in order for awareness to be really powerful, 
it needs many other qualities assisting it. And one of the strongest qualities is an equanimity. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. And I believe that Susie is going to be talking about that in a later talk. So a very clear space to see how things are. And from that knowing and facing it squarely, a clear assessment with some understanding is born. So equanimity just doesn't mean, you know, just being there and this is how it is. It's like, a, you know, just being not being a doormat to life, but knowing how it is with understanding so that there can be a response that's beneficial and non-harming and uh, not just for others but for one's own karmic stream that we're not replanting um, defilements in the mind by our reactivity to to come up again and, and torture us some way. So then we have the ability to t- make the most skillful action or to say something skillful or to know if it's better not to say anything or not to do anything. So I want to give an example of that. Um, A neighbor was very unhappy about our cutting down of some trees on the borderline of our property. And um, we were making a firewall all, all around the borderline as much as we could. So she was very upset and asked for a meeting. It was a very heated conversation. I was kind of in the place of trying to defend our right to do that and at the same time understand why it's disappointing to her that after all these years, you know, she had those trees there and they, were, uh, they weren't that tall, but they just kind of... Um, she liked that view, basically. And so I was making the case of our property and the right to mow it. She made her case. And I noticed the outer conditions were very strong. You know, got very heated, including in my own uh, response to her. And so it was very difficult. So there was a moment when I had the wherewithal to say, oh, this is the way it is right now. These are the conditions it's very difficult right now. And so I had somewhere with all to know outer conditions. This is how it is right now. So I looked at the inner conditions and noticed this is how it is right now in my heart too, in my mind. Heart-mind is the same thing in the Dharma, citta, and they say that it's right here, not here, but it resides in this area. So... Um, Notice there was confusion, there was doubt about what to say, there was a sense of helplessness, there was anger, and things like that coming up over and over again. So I said to her, you know, I'd better not say anything now. I just want to refrain to say something now because I'd noticed, quietly noticed, this is how it is right now in my heart. But I didn't say that to her, I just said, I probably need to be careful of my speech because um, I don't know uh, whether I'm going to say the right thing. I'd better be careful because I'm not so clear. And she responded, that's right. You're not so clear right now. (laughs) Whoa. I really had to apply a number three arrow, (laughs) a number three protection to that arrow. You know, it was like... So, um, you know, there's, it can be more than one or two, can be even three arrows like that. So I want to talk right now about the terrain around the conditions of um, uh, reactivity. So the direct opposite uh, is called reactivity the direct opposite of equanimity. It's also called the far enemy because one can see it from afar. So these are the things to watch out for in reactivity. 
any way that the mind reacts with aversion or attachment. You know, there's subtle ways and there's gross ways that that can happen. You, you know what I mean. It does, I don't have to lay it all out. And in our training here, we're learning how to recognize those moments. And so perhaps when we recognize those moments, uh, uh, we can bring a measure of equanimity to that experience. Some experiences or attitudes of mind are beautiful. It's said that, and they're wholesome. It's said that when we bring awareness there, it actually nurtures them. And when we bring awareness to uh, defilements to the mind, those uh, reactive states, aversion uh, or attachment, then it, it actually kind of feeds them. When there's no awareness uh, there, it feeds them. But when there is awareness then it, there, it weakens them. It weakens those defilements. So it takes a lot of strength and steadiness and spacious balance uh, and a lot of humility. And not humiliation, but humility. To actually admit that to ourselves, you know, that the mind is reactive or that we see these defilements come up. There was um, a time when Manindra taught me to use certain words when I would see that come up outwardly, uh, you know, when see experiences in the world where I had an inward reaction to it of aversion or wanting it to be a certain way and it wasn't that way. And so he would say, uh, use these words as a way of just accepting or allowing the mind to know it. He would use these words, surrender to the law. And this law means the nature of how it is. It doesn't mean the police. It means the nature of how it is right now. Can we surrender to that law? So every time I would say, why, Manindra, is it like this? Or why is it like that? Or like this in my heart? He would say, first thing to do, surrender to the law. Just be able to open to it. And I learned this through um, kind of a story that maybe some of you have heard already. When I first um, met Manindra, maybe it was after a few years, and the first time he came to my house to stay for a while, a few months, is when he had to undergo an operation and my um, colleagues wanted um, him to stay in a place, you know, that would be comfortable for him, easy um, climate, and so that was where I lived. And so Manindra came to stay with us, and I had known him for a few years already, and after he had his surgery, I really wanted everything to be so perfect in my house, you know. There were um, four children, and it was, a, um, you know, they could get really rambunctious, and so I gave them a talk ahead of time and said who they knew about Manindra. He had visited before, but never stayed there. And, um, and I said, you know, he's going to go through this, and please, please, be on your best behavior, okay? And so, you know, of course, they said, okay. And, <laughs> but that didn't mean that they would. Um, they might forget. Uh, and so... There was a situation where I was, we were having dinner at the table uh, with Manindra and a few of the other children. So I was sitting here and Manindra was at, on this corner on my left sitting there. And the youngest daughter was in the other room with her father, and this is not Steve Armstrong, by the way, with her father. And um, I heard her father raise his voice and said, um, Therese, yes, you must do this. And she said something like that. And then she said, no. And he said, you mu- yes, you must. They were having the big argument. And maybe about the homework or something. And no, she said, no. And so she stomped out of that room, which was on this side. And she walked around us 
and down the hall, stomping. And in the meantime, you know, they started shouting and I was slinking deeper and deeper in my seat and feeling so embarrassed, you know, not wanting it to be that way, wanting it to be different, really upset at daughter and the father because, you know, making a big scene. And Manindra was sitting by my side just kind of looking, you know. (laughs) And I was thinking, now this doesn't happen in India, but that's probably not really true. And he's not used to this, and I was so um, embarrassed. I was really, really embarrassed. Humiliated, I felt humiliated. And um, so further than that... He, she stomped down the hall, father right after her, slammed the door as hard as she could, and he knocked on the door, open the door, no, open the door, no, louder and louder, open the door or I'll kick this door in, go ahead, <laughs> boom, you know, that's what happened, and it was like, wow, the worst thing, right, for a mom, And uh, especially, you know, thinking, what are you training these kids anyway? No, he didn't go there. But um, what happened was he took his right hand and he reached over to my left forearm and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, surrender to the law. (laughs) And it was like so relieving, like, okay, this is how it is right now, you know. He wasn't so worried about it, but I was, you know. In time, I, he was just so accepting. That's how it goes in life. Been a lot, through a lot in his life, and it's just how it goes. So surrender to the law, that's a really important thing I say to myself you know, when it's really hard, and I don't want to face what is in front of me, the conditions sometimes. It's better now, not, you know, not like it was way back then. Of course, there's more equanimity, but still, my path isn't finished. Still more to learn. So that's reactivity, the far enemy. And the near enemy is um, called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity. It has many manifestations. Um, It's called indifference or apathy sometimes because one isn't really connected isn't connecting to what's happening there's kind of a distance between Um, it's almost like a turning away uh, but that can be yeah that can be part of it too don't want to see it passivity complacency it's also experienced sometimes when we're honest with ourselves is not really caring about the situation. It's like, it's not my problem, you know, but and not really feeling into what it might be for that, for the situation around us, for the person, and even for ourselves. Avoiding, being in denial sometimes is uh, expressed as this um, near enemy being in denial of it, complete denial of what's really going on. Sometimes someone said to me, it's sometimes an emotional emptiness, not having even a feeling about uh, what's going on around us or, or even within us. So it's important, um, it's important to make the point that bringing spacious balance around whatever is happening does not mean that we're resigned to it uh, or it means that it disempowers our right or our need to respond or to help. Of course we do that. But first we want to see clearly. We're able to do that by calming down the heart and the mind. This is how it is right now, seeing if we can accept with clarity what's going on. The second step is to care deeply. We'll get really get connected to what's going on. And the third step is to respond wisely. 
So that's all part of equanimity. It's actually to take action sometimes, but to take action with a mind that's more wise and more compassionate and knows what we're working with, really knows the resources to go to within. So we can hear about um, equanimity and think, oh, that means I won't have any boundaries. Yes, we will. We're able to say no powerfully and clearly. And of course, maybe we get in situations where we have to protect ourselves. And so we do that also. So this this is all part of seeing clearly. If we're in real danger, we need to respond appropriately. This is part of equanimity. So just as there are these eight vicissitudes of life in in our life outside of this protection we have here, these cycles of life come to us here also when we're in retreat. So it's part and parcel of our practice that uh, experiences will come up that are hard to bear or maybe um, pleasant experiences will come and right away instead of just seeing the coming and going of it, there's attachment to it, and, you know, thinking that it will go on forever. And when it doesn't, we're disappointed. You know, we're unhappy with that. Like one of my friends said, maybe I said this to you already, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day. Like you just can get so attached to it that... So it takes a lot of skill, you know, to really know ourselves and to know what's coming up. And it takes a lot of patience. So equanimity has many strengths. The strength to allow our practice to move more deeply into the truth. Because different layers of of experiences will come different layers of understanding with those experiences will come and more and more we're able to rest in the grace of wisdom as we go through this practice. So it, it very strongly supports mindful attention and is able to realize deeply how it is, not only those moments but also of difficulty but recognize the moments of true peace. So I'd like to just a few more minutes to um, share with you an experience I had in nature that helped me understand the spaciousness part of equanimity and the strength uh, that that uh, helped me to have when would see difficult things arise almost alongside the beautiful things that were happening. So I often have a strong memory of the, one of the last visits I had to Manindraji when he lived in India. And I was um, go, I went there because I thought I might not be able to see him again. But thankfully I was able to see him one more time. Uh, and this was the second to the last time. He wanted very much for us to go down the Ganges River to be able to in Varanasi to take a boat there to be able to see the burning ghats alongside the river. And um, so we took an early boat before dawn. That's when usually you board in the coolness of the morning. And so just sitting there beside Manindraji and going down the river and being able to just feel the open-heartedness of my heart and probably learning how to open it more through that period of time. So on the far horizon on my left was the sun rising in the sky. And it was this enormous ball of orange and light and um, beauty and hugeness. And it felt like such openness and birth of a new day. And as I rode along, also on the other side, just turning my head to the right, would be the burning ghats and death. 
actually seeing close by sometimes um, beings that had died and were on the pyres, the burning uh, wood. And so there were families in sadness and in grief and on my that, that were there on my right. And, and here in the boat, I was able to be close to people I knew, my dear Dharma friends, a couple of them, and also Manindraji by my side. And um, just, you know, having had a teacher. Now, I didn't see him every day, you know. I, I had a te- him as a teacher when I went to retreat with him or he came to visit. Uh, during that time I told you about. So there was a lot of quiet joy and there was a lot of sorrow too, uh, seeing the people there in their sorrow. So there was some despair and um, helplessness to see that I couldn't help the, the people who were sometimes destitute, you know, and would come up in, di- in boats and um, wanting some uh, offering from us. They were able, to, or they swam up sometimes, and wanting to have some generosity come from us. But also some um, mudita for um, some happiness, for the ability of my friends to be there also. I brought them along with me so they could be with Manindraji. That was one of the happiness things I felt. And then there's the rawness of, of being in India. Just the rawness of it. And the, it's hard, you know, to open the heart uh, to see all the different experiences that one might see. It's, it's a learning. It's going to India is a retreat in itself, you know. It's an awareness retreat. Um, and also... Um, the rawness was, there was also the beauty of it, you know, just to see how people handled it sometimes and just the beauty of all the saris that you would see blowing in the wind as the women would sit on their, on the, you know, scooters or in in the back of the scooters riding. It was just so beautiful. So my heart could open uh, to the far horizons, you know, on the left, on the right, the brawness, the beauty, the happiness, the sadness, the birth, the death. All of this, you know, it was such a great teaching of the spaciousness of the heart that's able to hold it all without resistance or without aversion. So let's sit for a few moments with those understandings and let my words go. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.